0: Bismillah ar rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wassalatu Salatu Wa Ala Abdillahi Wa Yina Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi ajma'in Amma Baad So inshaAllah ta'ala We Continue With the explanation of الورقات باي امام حرامين ابو المعالي عبد المالك بن عبد الله الجويني رحمه الله تعالى And we concluded last time by covering some of Al-Ahakam al the ten rulings with which the Sharia came. and we said we can divide them into two Al-Ahkam Al-Taklifiyah and Al-Ahkam Al-Wad'iyah so Al-Ahkam Al-Taklifiyah are those rulings which relate to Taklif, they relate to obliging us with regard to certain actions, making things obligatory or haram or recommended or disliked or permissible and al-Hikam al wadiyya are those rulings which relate to things which are normally outside of our actions. For example something is a condition for something something prevents a ruling from taking place something being correct or valid, something being invalid so inshallah we covered those last week so the next section begins with the statement of the author in which he said وَالْفِقْهُ أَخَصُ مِنَ الْعِلْمُ وَالْعِلْمُ مَعْرِفَةُ الْمَعْلُومِ عَلَى مَا هُوَ بِهِ he says fiqh is more specific than knowledge In other words, what he's saying here is fiqh, the word fiqh as in usul al-fiqh the word fiqh is more specific than knowledge. And then he goes on to define what knowledge is so the question is why is fiqh more specific than knowledge why is fiqh more specific than than knowledge we defined fiqh last time with two meanings We said that fiqh in a general sense means knowledge, like in the hadith مَن يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا فِي Whoever Allah wants good for them, He gives them fiqh in the religion. And then we said the specific or the, the detailed definition of fiqh, the, definition, the technical definition of fiqh, which we spoke about last time in relation to knowing the specific evidences or, or knowing yeah, the rulings of issues from their specific evidences. But here what he's saying is that even the word fiqh in a general sense is more specific than al-ilm. Because a person may have ilm but not fiqh. Is there any evidence for that? The Prophet ﷺ said, regarding the person who takes knowledge or transmits knowledge, perhaps the one who carries it is not faqih. فَرُبَّ حَامِلِ فِقْهٍ غَيْرُ فَقِيْهٍ Perhaps the person who carries some fiqh is not faqih, and yani maybe the person who carries some knowledge is not faqih, he doesn't understand that knowledge. ورب حامل فقه الى من هو افقه مِنْ And maybe a person who is carrying some fiqh will transmit it to someone who has more fiqh than them. So based on this, a person may have knowledge, for example, of a hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He may have memorized that hadith from the Prophet. ﷺ. But he doesn't understand all of the rulings from it. So when he transmits it as he should have done, he memorizes it, he learns it, he transmits it as he should have done then he may well transmit it to a person who understands it better than he does i.e. he has knowledge of what the hadith is but he might not have understanding of what that particular hadith means and that's just one example of fiqh being a bit more specific than al-ilm than knowledge because a person may have some knowledge of something but they don't have deep understanding of what that of that knowledge that they have he then goes on to define knowledge مَعْرِفَةُ الْمَعْلُومِ عَلَى مَا هُوَ به. Knowledge is knowing something as it really is. Knowledge is knowing something as it really is. And then he defines ignorance. And he says al-jahlu tasawwur al-shayi ala ma huwa bihi Ignorance is imagining something to be in a way that actually opposes the reality of what it is. Imagining something to be in a way that opposes the reality of what that thing actually is and just in terms of benefit I mean I don't think it's drastically important for us to define al-ilmu wal-jahal but and just for, for the point of benefit Allah Azza wa Jal praises knowledge in the Qur'an and never ever praises ignorance. And there is no place in the Qur'an, in the sunnah in which ignorance is praised. And yet knowledge is praised in many ayat of the Qur'an. شَهِدَ اللَّهُ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إلا هو وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ وَأُولُو الْعِلْمِ قَائِمًا La ilaha al Allah testifies that there is no God worthy of worship but Him. As do the angels and the people of knowledge. He is maintaining His creation in justice. There is no God worthy of worship but Him, al-Aziz hakim the almighty, the all wise. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the people of knowledge and puts them alongside the angels in the list of those people who testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as for the people of ignorance then Allah azza wa jal criticizes them. For example, غَيْرِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا الضَّالِينَ Not those people who have earned your anger, nor those people who are ignorant, those people who have gone astray. They're so ignorant, they don't know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. They don't know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And there are many many examples of this in the Qur'an But just as a principle Allah Azza wa never ever praises ignorance Unlike for example The Christians Who until this day Praise the person who is ignorant Until this day they praise the person who is ignorant Because for them Knowledge equates To doubt in faith And that's true for Christianity knowledge equals doubt in faith because the more knowledge you get the more you realize that this belief system is it doesn't work it doesn't make any sense you start asking questions like where did the Trinity come from and when was it established and why didn't Jesus tell anyone that he was God or the Son of God so the more knowledge you get in Christianity, the weaker your faith becomes. And so the priests and the monks and the pastors praise the ignorant person who has faith. But in Islam, your faith, it comes from knowledge. And the more knowledge you have, then the more faith you develop. Your faith increases with knowledge. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِنَّمَا يخشى اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ إِنَّمَا يخشى اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ The only people who really fear Allah among His servants are the people of knowledge. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala limited the proper fear of Allah to the people who have knowledge. And like it has been said, فَكَيفَ تَتَّقِي مَنْ لَا يَدْرِي وَكَيفَ يَتَّقِي مَنْ لَا يَدْرِي مَا يَتَّقِي How can a person have taqwa if he doesn't know what he's having taqwa of? How can a person have Taqwa, how can he prevent himself from the punishment of Allah when he doesn't know who Allah is so we establish and I think that is of more benefit than this definition this definition is not drastically important and this is a habit of sometimes in in some things in usul al-fiqh they want to define everything and I and mean these definitions have some uh, any reasons behind them which we will see in a short while. But anyway, there's no harm in the definition as a definition and I mean we have to understand the value of knowledge and the danger of ignorance. Then he divided knowledge into two types. And again, yeah, like there is sometimes you ask your, you ask yourself I and mean, sometimes what is the what is the fruit of that I and mean, what is the benefit of that. But in any case yeah, he divided knowledge into two types, Al and al ilm al knowledge by necessity and knowledge which is gained a knowledge which comes by necessity and knowledge which is gained by learning and studying evidences so what is Al-Ilm daruri? the knowledge that is known by necessity is the knowledge that doesn't come from thinking and يعني, providing or looking at evidences for things such as the knowledge which comes from one of the five senses hearing and seeing, smelling, tasting and touching or knowledge which comes by Attawatur now we have to define what is Attawatur Attawatur, tawatur and you probably might be more familiar with it in in another way if we say mutawatir. At-tawatur is that knowledge which comes from so many places that it is not possible for there to be any lie or any mistake in it. And let me give you an example of that. One person comes to you with some news. They tell you, oh, there was a big accident on Sheikh Zayed Road. There was a big accident on Sheikh Zayed Road. And there were so many cars involved and there was so much traffic okay this person could be telling the truth they could be exaggerating they might have made a mistake they might be telling a lie and we have to find out more we have to search for the truth so this does not come under ilm al daruri, any knowledge by necessity or essential knowledge because you have to look into it you have to investigate are they telling the truth or are they not telling the truth Are they exaggerating or are they not exaggerating? Did they get confused and actually they heard it from someone and actually what he said is he said some other road, Muhammad bin Zayd or something like that. He gave another name of another road and he mixed it up. But one person comes and tells you this and then immediately after that from a totally different place somebody phones you up. As-salamu alaykum, wa alaykum salam I'm stuck in traffic on Sheikh Zayed Road. a huge accident. Okay, now you feel a bit more confident about it. Now you feel a little bit more confident about it. What do you do then when a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, a tenth person comes? None of them are speaking to each other. They all come separately from one another and all of them say the exact same thing. Do you now need to research and test and investigate and check the RCA website to see if it was true? You don't need to do that. Because so many people told you the same story from different sources that it's not possible that all of those people agreed to lie. And that's different from four people who come in and tell you the story who were in the same car. Because the four people who come and tell you the story from the same car, it's perfectly possible that those four people united upon lying. And in this book, just tell him that there was an accident and he won't mind so much. Just uh, tell him there was an accident. some problems on the sister side. Okay, hopefully that's getting fixed on the sister side. We're having some difficulties with the audio. Uh, I mean, if the, if, if the audio or video difficulties continue on the sister side, then I would suggest the sisters just come to the masjid and use the sister's section upstairs uh, we'll give it another go uh, because it's been, it's been on and off this whole time that's why I keep stopping my speech every two seconds because something is on this uh, connection is not working if it continues to work inshallah they restarted the system if it continues to, to work inshallah then khair if it doesn't work then I would suggest for the sisters that they come to the masjid and use the sister's section upstairs So we're talking about this accident on Sheikh Zayed Road that never really happened but we're using it as an example. So four people come into the room, who were all in the same car. Do you feel confident that it's impossible they agreed to lie? No, it's possible that they said don't tell him, just tell him that we got in an accident and... You know there's a possibility that they lied. There's a possibility that they made a mistake. But when you get information from different sources multiple people in multiple different ways and they all say the same thing then this is what we call mutawatir it has reached a level where it is not possible for there to have been a lie or a mistake what's the difference in 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 practicality because you know this has a big piece of ilmul kalam so What's the practical difference between Al-Mutawâtir and Al-Ahad? Al-Ahad are those narrations which do not reach the level of Mutawâtir. There is a practical difference. And that is, when something reaches the level of Mutawâtir, you no longer need to investigate it. And that is, a, I mean, that's a real, practical, genuine difference. When something reaches the level of Mutawâtir, you no longer need to investigate it. You no longer need to check the chain of a hadith, when the chain of the hadith comes from 80 different people. Whoever lies about me deliberately, let him take his seat in hell, is narrated by so many companions from so many different chains, there is no need for you to check is this narrator reliable, is this narrator not reliable because it's narrated from so many people it doesn't matter who was reliable and who wasn't reliable the narration has to be authentic. So where is the difference between Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bid'ah in the Mutawatir? The difference is, yes, some of Ahlul Sunnah said, we have no, you take your mutawatir and go with it, we have nothing to do with it. But that wasn't the majority. The majority of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah said, yes, there is such a thing as mutawatir. There is such a thing as a narration or a piece of knowledge which reaches you from so many people that you don't need to worry about checking each individual person's reliability because so many people told it to you you no longer have any doubt over whether it's authentic or not they said yeah fine but where they differed from Ahlul Bid'a is that Ahlul Bid'a used this categorization to reject part of the sunnah of the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And so what they did is, they said we will not accept a narration which is not mutawatir in certain areas, in certain types of knowledge. Most famously, a hadith about aqeedah. They said if the hadith has got something to do with aqeedah, we will only accept it if it is mutawatir and this is false because a hadith which does not reach the level of mutawatir can still be authentic easily and it can be authenticated and it can be proven to be authentic. Just like when that person comes in who is one guy and says there was an accident on Sheikh Zayed road, it is possible for you to authenticate that information, it is possible for you to go on to a website or onto Google or RTA and to verify that that person is telling the truth. Therefore, why are we rejecting the narration of one or two people? Furthermore, the Prophet ﷺ accepted the narration of one person. Abu Bakr accepted the narration of one person. Umar accepted the narration of one person. So the testimony of one person is accepted in Islam, and there is no issue with that whatsoever. So yes the mutawatir exists, yes there is knowledge if you want to be technical about it, there is certain types of knowledge which we call them mutawatir, meaning that that knowledge doesn't need you to check it out, it's like in front of your eyes. You know, or it's something you yourself heard. You don't need to investigate. Was my hearing working I and mean, incorrectly? Was I, I mean, was I really, am I really trustworthy in what I heard? And it's not, I mean, you heard it, you're sure you heard it. That's enough. I mean. Likewise, so many people tell you something that it's not possible for there to be any mistake or a lie. And there's no number for that, by the way. There's no number which defines mutawatir. It's not 10 people or 20 people, in some cases it may be 2 people. Because those 2 people are so reliable and from so different, I mean there's such different places that 2 people is enough for you to be convinced there could be no mistake and no lie. It may be 200 people and maybe 200 people is still not even enough for you. It depends on the circumstances. But as for using the mutawatir as an excuse to reject Aqeedah, then this is something that is known from Ahlul Bida' and is not known from Ahlul Sunnah. Ahlul Sunnah accepted reports and narrations which are Ahad, and they accepted reports and narrations which are mutawatir. And from the most famous and and perhaps the way that it's benefit, and in terms of Imam al-Bukhari, <coughs> that he refuted these people at the beginning of Sahih al-Bukhari and at the end of Sahih al-Bukhari. Because he began Sahih al-Bukhari with a khabar which is ahad. Inna a'amalu bin Wa This is not mutawatir. This is a khabar which is ahad. Nobody narrated it from the Prophet ﷺ except Umar. And nobody narrated it from Umar except one person. And nobody narrated it from him except one person. And so on. And and then it spread out after that. And then he concluded Sahih al-Bukhari with a hadith which is Ahad. Kalimatan. Two words that are beloved to Ar-Rahman, light on the tongue and so on. Heavy on the scales. SubhanAllah wa bihamdihi, SubhanAllah So, Imam al-Bukhari began his book, which is the most authentic book after the book of Allah, with a khabar which is ahad, not mutawatir, and he likewise finished it with a hadith which is not mutawatir. As though he is turning to those people and saying to them, Ahlus Sunnah are unanimous in accepting narrations which are authentic even if they do not reach the level of being mutawatir then we say to them those people who only accept the narrations which are mutawatir why do you not make this a general rule? if you made it a general rule we could, we could understand you said we do not accept ahadith which are ahad ever and we only accept a hadith which are mutawatir. But why is it that you find them, one day they accept it and one day they reject it, one hadith they accept, one hadith they reject. It goes back to the asal, the belief that they, we told you last week, that everything they do re- returns to, which is what? Al-aql fawq The intellect is superior to the Qur'an and the sunnah and when they held this principle that their intellect is superior they allowed themselves to say whatever my intellect understands is sahih and whatever my intellect doesn't understand is da'if and so which hadith did they end up rejecting the hadith of the sifat the hadith of allah about allah about Allah rising, and about Allah descending, and about Allah speaking. Why? Because they said, my intellect cannot understand it. As for innama al-a'malu bin niyat, I believe it's authentic. We say, Ya Abdullah, why you accept this and you don't accept this? He says, well, my brain can comprehend innama al-a'malu bin niyat. But my brain can't comprehend that Allah descends. In the last third of the night, so I accept this and I reject this. This is Sahih and this is Baqal. And so really this is nothing but judging by desires. And that is the status of these people. So I don't have a problem divine dividing something into Mutawatir and Ahad. Or into Mutawatir and Ghayru Mutawatir. I Mutawatir and not Mutawatir. No problem arranged perfectly fine there are some types of knowledge you don't have to investigate them I have no issue with that but when you use that principle to reject the Sunnah this is what I have a problem with and that is why some of the scholars and he said we have no need of this division and we have no need of dividing things into mutawatir and ahad because at the end of the day the only reason they did this is to reject part of the book of Allah Do you disbelieve or do you believe in part of the book and disbelieve in another part? However, most of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah, the majority of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah affirmed that there is such a thing as Mutawatir but we just don't use it the way that Ahlul Bid'ah use it. So we use it in the proper way which is that we simply recognize That when a a piece of knowledge reaches a certain amount of of information, it's no longer necessary for us to take a microscope and to look at every individual person to investigate did it really happen or not, because we have enough reports to make us confident of that. And that is inshaAllah ta'ala, in my opinion, the most balanced opinion. We use it, we benefit from it, but we don't take it to the extent that we reject part of the sunnah or we speak about the rejection of part of uh, the Sunnah so al-ilm al-daruri any knowledge by necessity are those things you experience with your own senses and al mutawatir those two are considered to be knowledge by necessity in reality there's still some uh, question about that because even your own senses could lie you know, you at times, and your own senses could fool you at times. Uh, as Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said, "فَسَحَرُوا عيون... عيون النَّاسِ وَاسْتَرْهَبُوهُمْ وَجَاءُوا بِسِحْرٍ عظيم. They deceived through magic. And they bewitched the eyes of the people. So what they saw with their eyes is not what was really there. So and it's also possible that you might experience something with your senses which is not true. But in general, the second category is al-ilmu al-muqtasab knowledge which is gained through study and through contemplation and through studying different evidences and again he defines what is meant by another, and this is one of the favorites of the mutakallimin. Another, and he says another is al-fikru fi hal thinking about the thing you are contemplating. So another is contemplation, and he kindly defines for us contemplation by telling us that contemplation is thinking about the thing you are contemplating. Uh-huh. The problem with this issue of contemplation again is not contemplation or the definition, but again this concept of the mean that they will say the first thing that is obligatory upon the servant is to contemplate. Instead of saying the first thing that is obligatory upon us is to testify that there is la ilaha illallah, They say no. The first thing that is obligatory is you have to contemplate. Because if you don't contemplate, first you cannot testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah. And some of them said you have to doubt. Because if you didn't doubt, then you cannot be said to be certain. And all of this is batil or falsehood. Other than the first obligation for every person is to testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah based upon their fitrah and based upon I mean, what comes to them from certain knowledge. That is what comes to them from the prophets and the messengers But he doesn't go into that here, he just defines another. There is no harm in that. He says that al-ilm al-muqtasab, a yani knowledge that you gain, is knowledge you gain through contemplation and through studying evidences. Okay, again we don't have any major issue with that unless they start talking about contemplation being the first you know واجبات, the first wajib upon every servant or something like that but they're just the general idea that knowledge is there's some knowledge you don't have to study for and some knowledge you do have to study for I don't think mean, that's not a big not a big issue but it's also not a big benefit either and the istidlal is <sighs> al daleel and he, he says looking for evidences is asking for evidences and this word istidlal it means to search for evidences to search for evidences and then he asks and he defines what is a dalil what is an evidence an evidence is something as he says al-murshid al matloob Evidence is that which guides you to what you are seeking. That's what the word dalil means. لأنه علامة لأنه علامة because it's a sign. Yani it, the word dalil means something which guides you to your intended uh, yani goal or your intended destination. And that is why the person who guides you on the road when you don't know which way to go can be called a dalil. So a dalil is something which guides you to what you are looking for and indicates to you where, which way to go to get what you are looking for. And then he divines two more things and these are, these go with al-ilm because he's finished now with al-ilm and so he says you've got knowledge and then you have al-dhan and al-shekh al-dhan is what you believe or what you we want to, I was trying to avoid using a complicated word But what is preponderant I And mean, what do you think is most likely to be true This is a van. The word van means to guess But here he doesn't mean to guess Like just to randomly guess Or you know like Eeny meeny You know, It's not like that He means to guess as in To make an educated decision About which thing you believe To be most likely to be right without reaching the level of knowledge. And he defines Awan as being tajwizu Amrain Ahaduhuma Abharu Minal al He's the presence of two things. One of them is more apparent than the other. So he defines Advan and and I mean really you have to use the word preponderant and it's not, you can't use the word guess and I can't think of another word in English that is appropriate for Advan other than saying something which is preponderant and something which you weigh up two things and one of them is more apparent than the other one of them is more likely than the other So you go with that one and you consider it to be a dhan. And you consider it, it's not knowledge because you're not certain for sure that those two things, that one of them is definitely right. But you looked at them and one of them seems to be right and one of them seems to be wrong. And where do we start with a dhan? Once again, it is another area of considerable controversy and difference between Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bid'ah. Why do they want to categorize things into ilm and into dhan? Because they want to reject a part of the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah How do they do that? They turn up and they say, well, are you really sure? that that hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari definitely was said are you a hundred percent sure or would you say you are you have done you think it's probably right but you don't know for sure are you a hundred percent sure that Imam Malik didn't make a mistake in that chain of narration one time you know you're absolutely certain that he didn't make a mistake and then from there they go on their tangent about aqeedah and hadith al-ahad and how can you be sure it's right and the yufidha of one and all the way to the end and Ahlul sunnah have two positions both of them are valid a group of ahl sunnah they said it is not done it is aim. they said these things when you have Studied them once you have studied that hadith once al-Bukhari and all of the scholars after him studied that hadith it no longer became preponderant it became certain knowledge because through that study you reached a level where you are completely convinced that that hadith is authentic did we understand that any like that basically yes in the beginning the first time you heard that hadith you had one like the first time it, it ever crossed the muhaddith's ears he had one and he, he he said well you know lo- looking at what i can see it seems to be authentic but after studying the narrators and the chain and after all of the conditions which have to be present and after all of the scholars which came after them and studied them we no longer have a guess we have absolute certainty that this hadith is authentic this is one position from Ahlus sunnah and probably we can say it might not be the majority and Allah knows best the second opinion of Sunnah is to say, okay, we agree with you, this hadith is based upon one, it's based upon it being preponderant. we cannot be a hundred percent sure, we cannot be a hundred percent sure that this hadith is definitely, was definitely said with those exact words in that exact way. But we can be a hundred percent sure that we have been commanded to act upon it. And that is the difference between Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bida'ah. Ahlul Sunnah differed. Do these Ahadith give us knowledge or they they give us like, you know, like, so say, is it 90% sure or is it 100% sure? Is it 99% sure or 100% sure? Some of them said 99%, some of them said 100%. But those who said 99% said, even if it is 99%, we are commanded to act upon a dhann. In the Qur'an and in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala said in the Qur'an, فَلَا جُنَاهَ عَلَيْهِمَا أَن يَتَرَاجَعَ إِن ضَنَّا أَن يُقِيمَ حُدُودَ اللَّهِ There is no harm on them to get back together, if they have dhun, if they have a guess, a preponderant judgment, that they will stick to the limits of Allah. So Allah Azza wa Jalla commanded that couple that they are allowed to get married or get back together again based upon a dhan. Based upon what is not certain. And so in Islam, and this is just one example of many times in the Qur'an, that we are commanded to act upon al The Prophet sallallahu acted upon al in his judgments. Those which were not based upon wahid. He said, perhaps one of you will be more eloquent in his argument than another. And perhaps I would give what was asked to the one who was the most eloquent. So whoever takes it has taken a piece of the hellfire, or as he said sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Meaning that when I judge based on worldly matters, I judge on without wahi, without revelation from Jibreel, the Prophet sallallahu simply someone comes and says he took my land, he took my land, okay which one is right? What is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi judging based upon? Knowledge or a preponderant guess? Obviously a preponderant guess because he himself said I may give it to the person who it's not right I may give it to the wrong person because one of you is more eloquent than the other and so he warned against people taking it so the, all of the judgments that the qadi makes are based upon one and he, when someone comes to me and says to me that this happened or that happened and what is the ruling then the judgment you make is based upon one it's based upon what you believe to be the most apparent because you cannot be absolutely sure. In those Masail Fiqhiyya, those issues of Fiqh, where you have two opinions of the scholars, when you choose one opinion over the other, is it Ilm or is it dun? It's also dun. And when you choose the correct opinion, for example, in the prayer, after you raise your hands from Ruku' is to say, Rabbana wa al-hamd without saying, Semi li And when you say no, the correct opinion is to say, Semi li manhamid, Rabbana wa al-hamd for the one following the Imam. Is this based on knowledge or is it based on an educated guess? It's an educated guess because ultimately you've weighed up two opinions and you've chosen what you believe to be the correct of the two. So this whole issue of one is not even an issue at all. Because Ahlul Sunnah said, we are required in Islam to act upon what is apparent. We are not required to have certain knowledge of everything. It's not a requirement in the first place. It's not needed. So all those mutakallimun, all those people of al kalam, who spent so long arguing about is it or is it ilm we say to them, ya ikhwan, that is not the question the question is simple do we act on it or we don't act upon it this is the question Ahl Sunnah ask not the question of is it knowledge or is it an educated guess we simply ask, do we act upon it or we don't act upon it an authentic hadith do we act upon it or not? We act upon it. We all agree we act upon an authentic hadith? Yes. And who cares whether it is done or in? Really doesn't make any difference at all. And this is what ilm al kalam will do to you. you know? You'll study these definitions and you come out thinking, Must fed ali, I didn't benefit anything. Because what benefits you is quite simply, do I act upon it or do I not act upon it? And this is the opinion, and this is the second opinion from Ahlul Sunnah is the opinion of the, perhaps the majority. That they said, yes, you know, if you want to argue about the theory, it's one. We cannot be absolutely certain that this word was said in the way that it was said. Not in the sense of absolute certainty like we can with something we saw or we heard, or something which came to us from a chain which is mutawatir because the two are not the same but ultimately it doesn't matter to us at all because we are required to act upon this and we are required to act upon that So the issue is finished perhaps in this we can say that the correct opinion and the general knows best among yani among sunnah is somewhere in the middle that in reality there are ahadith which are ahad which are not the level of mutawatir which reach the level of ilm Because when you study them, those conditions and that amount of effort that goes into them to reach the level of you know of study to get to to, to declare this hadith to be sahih is enough to give you absolute one hundred percent confidence. And there are some hadith which are authentic which do not reach that level. For example a hadith which is حَسَن لِغَيْرِهِ It's Hassan because of other ahadith, it's, it's a weak hadith but it just about scrapes you know like the minimum standard to be authentic, it's hard to say that you have absolute certainty in this hadith and sometimes you might rule a hadith to be weak and you may not have absolute certainty, you might rule it to be weak and it may turn out to be authentic and you might rule it to be weak and then later on it turns out that there's another chain you didn't know about and so that hadith is actually authentic but we are required to judge by what is apparent and there's a benefit in this uh, generally when people make this statement among the Shabbat it's very common don't judge me don't judge her don't judge him We ask them from what religion is this? Because in Islam, you are required to judge by what is apparent, by what is preponderant, by what is the most obvious to you. Yes, if you mean by don't judge me, don't judge my final outcome, I agree. If by saying don't judge me, you mean don't judge my final outcome, I don't judge whether I will be from Ahl Jannah or from I agree completely, because we do not know وَمَا يَعْلَمُ تَأْوِيلَهُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ We do not know the eventual outcome, no one knows the eventual outcome of where a person will be except Allah However, if I don't judge me, the person means that it is not allowed for a person to judge by what is apparent to them based on what they see and what they hear from a person then this is min abtul al this is the absolute biggest pile of falsehood you could ever imagine because in Islam from the beginning of the Quran to the end we are required to judge by what is apparent to us and we are required to act upon what is apparent to us So when someone says to you, don't judge me, say to them, clarify what you mean. If by don't judge me, you mean don't judge where my final outcome will be, okay, no problem. But if by don't judge me, you mean that no one has a right to use a van to make a judgment based on what is preponderant, then this is false. What isn't allowed without one is to unnecessarily or to incorrectly apply it. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala said, said يَا إِيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا جَتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الظَّنُّ إِنَّ بَعْضَ الظَّنِّ إِسْمٍ O you who believe, avoid a lot of dhan. and you Avoid just like run, you know like just going over the limit and instead of studying and being a bit careful about what you're doing you just randomly say, okay I think this is like this and this is like this and this is like this because run itself has levels and this is something again that you don't find any much explanation about but even a- 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 educated guessing or just guessing in general has levels there is a guess where you're 99% certain and there is a guess when you are 1% certain so do we make the two equal? No, we don't make the two equal. When Allah Jal said avoid a lot of suspicion, a lot of dhan, and he avoid the dhan where you do not have an evidence, you do not have something which makes it 99% or 98% or 97%. You are just making guesses based on something which is 10%, 15%, 20%. All of it is dhan, because dhan is where you, and you have two options, and in your opinion, one of them, is stronger than the other. طيب. The last word he defines is a shak doubt. And he says, doubt is amrain ahadihima al Doubt is for two matters to be placed before you. There is no way to prefer one of them over the other. I and mean, there is no way to prefer one of them over the other. In other words, they are 50-50. I and mean, the possibility is 50-50. If it's 60-40, no. Then it becomes one. Because now you are 60% sure. It's not great one, but you know, you're 60% sure. And 40% unsure but if it's 50 50 then we call it check doubt because you're not sure which of the two are correct and that leads us or that leads to an issue are we required to act upon something that we doubt So this is a, like a mas'ala, issue because we said yes we are required to act upon a one. Like when upon a preponderant or upon a, you know, an educated guess, we have to act upon it. When I look at a mas'ala in fiqh, is this halal or haram? And the best effort I can make is to say I'm 90% sure it's halal, then I have to act upon it. But am I required to act when I'm 50-50? This depends on the circumstances. There are certain things, I and mean, in which uh, doubt plays a role in the Sharia, I and mean, doubt also plays a role in the Sharia. It's not an imagined concept. I mean, just to give an example which comes to mind, doubt over seeing the moon to cite the the beginning of Ramadan, for example. If you doubt, I and mean, for example, you couldn't, you could, you're not sure whether it was seen or not. So what do you do? You complete your 30 days of the of the previous month and you know at the end of the day doubt is something which exists there are some issues we doubt we are not sure whether it's right or wrong so we're commanded to leave doubt where we are allowed to leave it and in certain circumstances the sharia sets certain actions when we have when we have doubt but essentially those are the three levels of I any mean, can say knowledge which is sure knowledge or certain knowledge (coughs) followed by something which is preponderant and it's an educated guess followed by doubt where you don't know and then of course at the bottom comes ignorance But uh, doubt you have studied the issue but you don't know which of the two answers is correct and again I'll repeat I don't have a major problem with those categories. I don't find them to be that much of an issue. But they can be an issue if you use them in the wrong way. And if you use them in the wrong way, they can become the foundation of ilm kalam I mean of philosophy and rhetoric. But if you use them in the right way I mean at the end of the day, if you're asking, are there some things in the Sharia we have knowledge of and some things that we have educated guesses for and some things that we doubt yeah, of course there are of course there are in anything in, in, in fiqh in rules in regulations there are things that we are certain about there are things that we have educated guesses on and there are things that we doubt I'm not sure is it obligatory to pray tahiyyat al masjid when you come into the masjid and the time you're one minute before salat al maghrib should you pray tahiyat al masjid or not for example, I can say I doubt. I'm not sure. I've seen the evidence for both sides. I don't know. Should I put my hands on my chest after rising from ruku? Say Ashukkufi and you have doubt because for me, I don't see any evidence for that or any evidence for that, which gives me any weight for one over the other. They're 50-50. So Allah alam. Allah knows best. There are some things that I have educated guess on. So my educated guess regarding al masjid is that it can be prayed at the time of Maghrib as the Shafi'iya said this is my educated guess based on some hadith and so on the hadith of the Tawaf do not stop anyone who enters the house from praying two rakah in any time of the day and the night for example so based on this my educated guess which gets me to 90% or 95% certain is that it is allowed or that it is recommended for you to pray ta'ayat al-masjid at any time you enter the masjid regardless of whether it is a forbidden time or a time which is not forbidden and then there are some things that you are certain of there are five obligatory prayers in the day and the night and so no issue with these things but the issue is when you use them in the wrong way so they are a double edged sword if you use them in the right way There's no issue, if you use them in the wrong way, you end up saying, I don't believe in this hadith because I have doubt, I don't believe in this hadith because it's not certain, I don't believe in the hadith about Allah, and and lots and lots of other problems that come about. So it's about how you use them more than the issue of the definitions themselves. then goes on to give you a more comprehensive definition of usool al-fiqh and the different topics that usool al-fiqh will cover now we covered this in the first week so I'm just going to read over it and that's it inshallah and then we'll move on because we've, we've covered this in the last week he says وَعِلْمُ أُصُولِ الْثِقْحِ al عَلَى سَبِيلِ الْإِجْمَالِ وَكَيْفِيَةُ biha so he says the knowledge of usul al is knowledge which deals with generalizations and how to use those generalizations in, in, in order to seek evidence for something that is what usul al is now we've mentioned that usul al-fiqh deals with generalizations rather than specifics. Usul al-fiqh doesn't answer the question, if I said divorce to my wife three times in one sitting, is she divorced or not? Usul al-fiqh does not answer that question. That's a specific issue. Usul al-fiqh deals with things which are ala sabeel al-ijmal, general concepts. It deals with concepts, not specific rulings. Fiqh deals with things ala sabir al-tafseer. Deals with things in very, very detailed, minute issues. Usul al-fiqh makes generalizations. Every single command means something is wajib. Every single prohibition means something or every single uh, statement which starts with do not means something is haram. And so on, it deals with generalizations, it doesn't deal with specific issues. And it deals with the means by which you can use the evidence that you have. كيفية الاستدلال How do I use something as evidence in a specific issue? So I have a specific issue, okay? I have a specific issue. My specific issue is a man came and he said, I said to my wife, and taliqa. you are divorced, divorced, divorced and he comes and says am I did I divorce my wife one time or three times okay so now I have a mas'ala I have an issue and I have the whole of the Quran and the Sunnah and Ijma' and Qiyas and all of these sources like a big giant library how do I go into that big giant library and bring out an evidence which will guide me to the right answer for this brother's question? That is what Usul al fiqh deals with. It doesn't deal with the question or the answer. It deals with كَيْفِيَّةُ Istidlal. How do I go inside of that huge library and come out with an evidence which will... What did he say an evidence is? What guides you to that which you are seeking. So now, I need something to guide me to what I'm seeking. Okay, what will guide me to what I'm seeking? What will guide me to what I'm seeking is I need to know how to go into that huge, big, you know, resource and come out with something that will guide me to the answer to that brother's question. That process of how you go into the Qur'an and the Sunnah and bring out evidences that will give you answers to your questions, that is what usul al-fiqh deals with in a general sense so it doesn't deal with talaq it doesn't deal with selling and buying it doesn't deal with riba it doesn't deal with nikah it deals with the general concepts which will allow you to make istidlal will allow you to extract evidence from the sources for which Islam gives you And so someone might ask a question. I, I often wonder how to put this in English. Uh, what is the? I'm going to use the word arena. What is the arena in which usul al-fiqh operates? Like, where do you? You know, where's your playing field? Like, what's? You know, where? What are the? What are the boundaries within which usul al-fiqh operates? We say that the arena in which it operates is the arena of evidences I mean because at the end of the day where is the usuli all day I and mean where does he spend his time he spends his time inside of those evidences inside of those inside of the Quran and the Sunnah but the difference between that and fiqh is that fiqh the arena is specific evidences like very specific evidences for specific issues but as for usul al fiqh the usuli is not looking at one issue He's looking at general generalizations, And that's why uh, Al-Juwaini rahimullah said al sabir al-Ijmal Generalization, general concepts He's not looking for the answer to whether someone is divorced or not He's looking for general principles that will allow him To when he changes his hat and puts his fiqh hat on will allow him to be able to go and extract the evidences from the Qur'an and the Sunnah and use them for specific issues and that use of evidences for specific issues we term to be fiqh, we term to be the science of fiqh. He said, the Chapters or the sections within Usul al-Fiqh are. So I gave you a a nice breakdown in the first. Well, I hope it was a nice breakdown in the first lesson. So here he just mentions them kind of without a lot of order, just kind of a bit randomly. So he says, the first thing is Aqsam al-Kalam. The different types of speech. وَالْأَمَرْ nahi, And commands and prohibitions. So we will cover this inshaAllah today, Aqsam uh, al-Kalam, like the, the way that speech is broken up. And then one of the things we deal with within speech is we deal with the issue of, and what did we put this in the first week? I think we put this in dilalatul al The proof, what, what are words proof for? The evidences that we derive from words. I think that was the category you put it in, diralatul al-falq, and is a, the uh, what what do words mean? And among that is al-amr wa al-nahi. Al-amr is a command to do something, and al-nahi is a command not to do something. For example, wa aqim al-salaah wa this is Amr. This is a command. Perform the prayer and give the zakah. And then there are prohibitions. <laughs> Do not make with Allah partners while you know that Allah is your Lord and Creator and so on. And then it deals with Al-Am wal-Khas. Al-Am al Al-Am wal-Khas are things which are general and things which are specific. And we'll come to the proper definitions later. But in general, I mean, you realize that there are some things in the Sharia which are general rulings. They apply to in a general sense. And then there are some rulings which are specific, right? They are like they're specific to certain, for example, times or or groups, or they are one ayah limits the other. This ayah is for this time, and this ayah is for that time. And al-amr al is one of the most beneficial forms of knowledge because a lot of the doubts people spread about Islam and the confusion people have around Islam comes from not realizing that there are ayat of the Quran which are applied generally and there are ayat of the Quran which are applied specifically to certain, you know like with certain restrictions Uh, then you have al-mujmal wal mubayyan you have those things which are mentioned in a vague sense you have those things which are mentioned in a, a vague sense or a general sense and you have things which are mentioned in uh, you have things which are mentioned in a very vague sense and things which are mentioned in a lot of detail so this might confuse a person if he didn't know about this a person might get confused that why is it for example that the Qur'an in general, any the ayat of the Qur'an in general are mostly mujmala, they are mostly uh, general in nature, they are mostly general in nature, they are not often very detailed. And then the sunnah comes along and provides detail to that generalization. For example, the Qur'an tells us, وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُ الزَّكَاةَ Perform the prayer and give the zakah But the Quran doesn't tell us uh, About the Amounts of the zakah and the nisab And how much to give and when to give it And so on, Quran doesn't Tell much about the zakah Apart from that you have to Give it, and then in other places Sometimes in the Quran and Sometimes in the sunnah, there is more There are more details about what we are required To give Uh, and you have uh, that which is apparent from the text and that which is implicit within the text that which is you can call it explicit and implicit I mean that which is explicit in the text that which is explicit and it's there in front of you clear as day and that which is implied by the text like we're not you know you have to use your reasoning or you have to use your knowledge to to get that meaning out the meaning is not its not there from the words the words themselves don't give you that meaning the words themselves don't give you that meaning but you have to kind of use your reasoning to get that meaning out of the ayah uh, and then uh, it covers Al uh, Af'al uh, the issue of verbs, any different what different words mean and what different verbs mean and such and of course we cover an nasikh wa al we cover abrogation and that which is abrogated so the abrogating text and that which is abrogated abrogation means that uh, either the ruling or the text no longer remains either the ruling or the text no longer remains so it's considered to be either the ruling or the text or both no longer remain and it has Allah before the completion of the revelation Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose for this particular ayah or this particular hadith to be abrogated I and mean to be erased either in wording or in meaning or both An usool al fiqh covers al-ijma' it covers consensus covers consensus consensus when all the people all the scholars agree on something, we'll cover the definition later because which scholars, what do they have to agree, how do you know they agreed, how do you know they didn't agree, this is we'll study later and analogy, so what is analogy, comparing two things, one of them the ruling is known and the other one the ruling is not known in order to apply the ruling of the first one to the second so for example someone comes along and says what is the ruling of let's say particular kind of recreational drugs say we don't know the ruling of that but we do know the ruling of let's say for example alcohol So we know that alcohol is haram and therefore what we do is we compare this any drink or whatever people are drinking or this tablet people are taking and we see that the effect is the same as alcohol and so we apply the ruling of alcohol to that particular issue and so on. This is Qiyas. You know the ruling of one thing, you don't know the ruling of the other. So you apply the ruling of one to the ruling of the other because they share the same characteristics. And then he says al wal Ibaha meaning al-tahreem, uh, al-halal wal-haram. Al-hadar wal-ibahah meaning al-halal wal-haram. Meaning, that which is halal and that which is haram. Wa-tar-teebul adillah. tar adillah it means ordering the evidence, putting evidences in order according to strength. This is also extremely important. Putting evidences in order according to strength is extremely important. Because perhaps you will find two evidences which appear to contradict themselves. Is it possible for the Qur'an to contradict? No. Is it possible for the Sunnah to contradict? No. Is it possible for the Qur'an to contradict the authentic Sunnah? No. Is it possible for the authentic Sunnah to contradict the Qur'an? No. But in our eyes it may appear to contradict. So we need to be able to put evidences in order of reliability and authenticity so that we can choose the most authentic and reliable evidence when we feel confused between multiple evidences. وصفة المفتي والمستفتي and the description of the mufti, the one who gives a fatwa, and المستفتي, the one who asks for a fatwa, because there are people who give fatawa, they give rulings and there are people who ask for rulings and both have characteristics and this again is where a lot of people get confused because everyone says, yeah, okay, I understand there are characteristics for the mufti like the mufti should have knowledge, should have the ability to extract the evidence from the dalil, the, you know, a lot of things that should be there within the mufti but a lot of people don't know that there are an equal number of things that should be or there are a number of things that should be present within the one who asks the question. Because you could ask a loaded question. How easy would it be to ask a loaded question? And how many times do brothers do this to the shayukh? And that's why when the brothers do this to the scholars, we always say to them, go back to the books of Usul al-Fiqh and read the chapter on Sifatul Mustafti. The description of the one who asks for a fatwa and you will see in there so much or so many things that brothers and sisters today do that that are wrong in the way that they ask questions to the ulama for example someone will phone the shaykh and say shaykh there is a brother who uh, comes to our masjid and we only know that he sits with the people of innovation and speaks with the people of innovation and loves the people of innovation what do you say about him, Shaykh? Taib, what do you want the Shaykh to say about him? You gave him the answer. You gave the Sheikh the fatwa. And you gave the fatwa to the Shaykh. You did not describe the brother in a factual way. You described him in a way that was your hukam on him. It may be as you said, it may be true. But you described him with, with a chukm, and You gave a ruling upon him to the Shaykh. And then you get so happy when the sheikh says, Mutsadi', innovator. Don't sit with him and don't talk to him. Okay, but he, like, the sheikh didn't have any knowledge of that. The sheikh literally took your ruling and repeated it back to you. But if you said, sheikh, there is a brother who says this about the Asma'ul Sifat. And he has said, yeah, last week he said this. And I asked him about it and said to him, brother, do you realize this is not from the Sunnah? And he said this. And then this and this and this. And you give the Shaykh the proper context and then the Shaykh says, Mubtadi', no problem. But you have to give the Shaykh factual information and you have to give him context. But as for giving him your ruling and then getting happy when he tells you you're ruling back, I mean this is you didn't benefit anything. And this happens a lot among the brothers, not just in this issue, but in many issues. Is that people phone up the sheikh and give the sheikh a fatwa. And the sheikh should, yeah, I mean generally, recognize that as some of our shuyukh did. There's a very nice tip, Shaykh Ibn Taymin, rahimahullah taala. Someone asked him a question, says, ta'ai, come here. Tell me who you are and where you came from. And this is from the fiqh of the sheikh because he wants to know give me the context give me more about who you are give me the context of where this information came from I'm not just gonna repeat your ruling back to you give me the context but the shiuk are human beings and sometimes you're answering a question to someone on the phone and you know subhanAllah, you forget to ask them something, you cannot ask them every, you know you don't have a probability tree that you can say to him, can I just ask, did you speak to him last week, did you speak to him the week before, did you speak to him the week, like you cannot ask everything, You, to a certain extent you rely upon the questioner, to give you the correct information. That's why when many of the scholars give fatwa they'll say, if the situation is as you described, then the ruling is this. Because you may have described to me the situation incorrectly, and we know very famously the story of uh, Dawood, when the two, uh, yani people came and the, you know, and the the, the test and the trial uh, with regard to the uh, the ninety-nine, the issue of the ninety-nine sheep and the one sheep. At the end of the day, you may get asked a question, and you very quickly answer. You, you got asked a question and very very quickly you, you answer and you then you realize immediately that, no, I went I, too quick. I didn't find out the full details of the situation. So the reality is that, that there are rules and regulations for asking questions. You know, asking a loaded question doesn't benefit anyone. And likewise, you know, from the, from the loaded questions is when somebody asks something in order to either expose the Sheikh or to put the Sheikh down or to... because he's having a go at his friend in the, in the audience and they're having a fight between each other so very innocently he puts up his hand and says Sheikh oh, just, Give me some knowledge Sheikh Allah I just, I just came sincere from the heart Just tell me Sheikh Is this allowed or not? It's allowed, who thinks it's allowed? And he, nobody thinks this is allowed except jahil. And then he stands up and points at his friends, he says, see I told you you are jahil. See, like this is again an example of not following the rules of and the etiquettes of asking a question. So there are etiquettes of a mufti and etiquettes of a mustafi Remember we said that the mufti and the mustafi are not part of the main body of usul al-fiqh. Because the main body of usul al-fiqh is how to extract evidences for specific issues from the... Quran and the Sunnah from the general body of evidence, how to use general rules and concepts to extract evidences. But it comes under the appendices. It's an appendix to usul al-fiqh, like it's kind of, it should be mentioned at the end of the book, in the, you know, sort of in the appendix. It's like the, it's, it's sort of like a mulhaq, an additional piece of of knowledge that relates to uh, this particular issue and the rulings of Ijtihad. What are the characteristics of a mujtahid and a muqallid? Is there a middle ground between a mujtahid and a muqallid? A mujtahid is the one who has the ability to extract rulings from Islamic sources without precedent. That's probably the best definition I can give you. The mujtahid is the one who has the ability to extract evidences from Islamic sources without precedent, or without referring to precedent. In other words, probably say without referring to precedent, because the precedent should be there, but without referring. So he doesn't need to refer to another scholar or a scholar to give his answer. And that's why the word scholar is a little bit imprecise. We don't, You don't ever hear anyone in usul al-fiqh use the word scholar. Because the word scholar is a bit of a a vague word, you know, like, I mean, sometimes we call everybody who learns Surah Al-Fatiha gets called Alim, and also it's not well defined. But the word mujtahid is very well defined, the one who has the ability to extract rulings from Islamic sources without referring to precedent, in other words, without referring to someone else's answer without referring to someone else's answer and that's true in court, even in courts in the West you have judges who are only allowed to rule by precedent and you have judges who are allowed to rule without precedent I mean, judges who can make their own opinions and judges who have to follow the opinions of other judges so this is the example of the mujtahid the mujtahid is the one who has does not need to refer to other scholars rulings that doesn't mean he will not he may well do so many times he may well do so many times but he doesn't he has the ability not to need to do it as for the muqallid the muqallid does not have the ability to do that the muqallid is the one who is required to follow a ruling given by by a mujtahid in some way or another And the reality is that even a mujtahid may become a muqallid at certain times. Because a mujtahid could be without his books, for example. Or he might have forgotten the issue. Or he might not recall the evidence. In which case he may have to do taqlid to follow the person. And we'll cover this later on. And we'll cover, for example, is there a a grey area between taqleed and ijtihad and is taqleed obligatory upon the ordinary muslim and if so how should taqleed done? because there's not a great deal of difference of opinion that taqleed is a requirement for the ordinary muslim and the student of knowledge there's not really a like there's not really a great deal of of disagreement in that but the big disagreement is how to do taqleed because taqlid according to Ahl-Sunnah and taqlid according to some of those people who are muta'assib and extremely uh, severe and strict in following their particular Imam the difference is not in whether you have to do taqlid like they will say you people don't believe in taqlid you say ya ajab that's not possible how can we not believe in taqlid And do we say that the guy who became Muslim on the first day should make Ijtihad and he should like apply, extract the rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah himself of course we believe in Taqlid but the difference between us and them is how to do Taqlid and not whether you do Taqlid in reality in other words how do you actually go about being a Muqallid do you have to stick to one Madhab Do you have to stick to one Imam? Are you allowed to take rulings from different people while you are still a Muqallid? Are you allowed to choose between different rulings when you are a Muqallid? These are questions we have to answer in usul al-saf. Because when we answer them it will become clear that the real difference between us and those people is in the application of taqleed, not in the belief of taqleed. Nobody from Ahlul Sunnah that I know of said there is no such thing as taqleed. I don't know of any scholar who said this but they said there is no such thing as a taqlid ul a'ma blind taqlid where the taqlid has no limitation where you don't care whether the shaykh goes against the sunnah or goes with the sunnah or goes with the dalil or without the dalil. if the shaykh tells you to jump you jump and that taqlid has no evidence for it in the Quran or in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ or in the action of the sahaba and the Sahaba were not all mujtahideen. And yani it's not correct to say the Sahaba were all ulama and mujtahideen. They were from the Sahaba bedouins who did not know much about the rulings of Islam. رضي الله عنهم وارضهم. May Allah be pleased with them. Among the Sahaba, there were people who were new Muslims. Among the Sahaba were those who spent years with the Prophet ﷺ and those who spent only a few minutes with him. So the Sahaba were not all mujtahideen. From the Sahaba there were people who followed the rulings of others and from the Sahaba are those who developed their own own rulings after the death of the Prophet So ultimately this is not a difficult issue to look at. It's about how you do taqleed and not about whether you do uh, taqleed. Okay, let's see if we can finish Aqsam al-Kalam because here is where we're gonna, it gets a little bit uh, rough and in, all, in all honesty, Juan, I'll tell you something in a general sense if you listen to the tape again and there's something you really don't understand it's probably not that important like in all honesty like this thing about il Namdan and Shaq like really I mean in the grand scheme of things, what we're concerned about is what do we act on and what don't we act on. We act on every authentic hadith, whether it is Sahih, whether it is hasan, whether it is li لغيره, if it's authentic, we act upon it. خلاص. If you understood that, you understood the main benefit from this whole issue of al ilm wal-Dhan wal doesn't mean it won't come in the exam, but I mean, like, don't worry for your the important thing you need to know is what should I act upon and what shouldn't I act upon. That's what matters. As for classifications and definitions, I mean, like they are forgotten easily and they have sometimes I mean, their own problems they come with. So Aqsamul Kalam is going to be one of those uh, those fun fun things that we have to do. alam. <laughs> Muhammad